Can you believe it? We've got to episode three. Moors and Mirror are here to entertain you once again. Third time round. You know why that's significant? Oh, I'm speaking to our co-host Maureen Heady. G'day, Moors. Hey, Chris. How are you going? And hey, Gary. Well, we'll talk about Gary, our mysterious, wonderful guest, because the whole premise of this show hangs off the fact that we actually have really interesting and engaging people with us, don't we, Moors? That's it. Now, I was just going to say the reason why episode three is important, because I think statistically... Most podcasts don't get past about two episodes. Well, I think the other thing too is if you hear something three times, you're more likely, or you're most likely to remember it. So if you receive marketing material three times, hear something three times, you remember it. The Moors and Mirror Show. Well, that's why we love Moors so much because she's so analytical and has a reason for being for everything. Thanks for popping up my tyres. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and we're also joined by the birthday boy, Michael, our technical producer. Hey, Michael Mirabella. And right after you just had that conversation, let's not timestamp this. <laughs> <laughs> well, we won't timestamp it, but uh, happy birthday, Mike. Thank you. Moors, I was having a bit of a think about things this week because actually just this morning, I was with a client earlier this morning and I've got a subject that I'm really interested in. It's about business names. And I've been asked quite often by people and clients, potential clients, what should I call my business? And I said, oh, I think you should have a rule that basically says your business name should be memorable. And Sort of like Cybots, AI? Our special guest, Gary Denson, is going to talk about that in a minute. And it's funny how you learn so much from people who are very successful and quite often the most successful people that I've met in business don't have any formal business training, but they have incredible acuity and street smarts. Anyway, so look, I, the reason I bring that up because I was with a client this morning and we were just flicking, we were talking about the project that we we're working on and he was referring me to a big supplier in his industry and the name of the business, and it just struck me straight away, Statewide Refrigeration. Now, without knowing anything about that supplier, I've got a fairly good idea what that business does. And I think one of the other options you have when you come up with a business name is to have something memorable. So in that case, it's not really exceptionally interesting, but it tells you exactly what the business is. But the other option, of course, is having something memorable. And I've got a fantastic one, that one, one that I remember. And the reason why I'm saying that is because the Moors and Mirror Show was born out of our business, which is called... Communis. Communis. And the best part about it is... Everyone has to stop and think about how they pronounce our business name. But it's communist like community. Yeah, and why did we why 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 community moors? Why what was our inspiration? Well our inspiration was the path that we've travelled together, Chris, in engaging with people, networking with people, looking at business promotion. And whether you've got a not for profit, a sporting club or a business it's all about your community, your clients, your customers, and that's where we fit really well. And we love that networking. It's important for us, for our business, as it is for most people. But uh, Out of Communists was Networking Matters, which was our brand that we established for um, our networking and our events that we have, event. And out of those events, we get to meet some fantastic people. Now, it's not that just people turn up because they've heard about us. We work very hard to get people to come and join us and be part of it. One such person who we love is our guest today, Gary Denson. That was a long way back. That was a huge run-up, wasn't it? That was a 1970s Dennis Lilly run-up. Yeah, Gary, you're showing your age just like me. You came full circle, Chris. And, yeah, you're right. At our Networking Matters event last March, 
this time last year, we met Gary for the first time. We were uh, connected with him through Laurie Serafini and had the pleasure of maintaining our connection with Gary. Welcome, Gary. Moors, Chris, how are you? Thank you very much for this kind invite. And I, I'll just jump in here trying to be very topical. I grew up in a little small country town in northern Victoria on the Murray River, a little place called Cobram. Now, our family arrived there in 1850, so we claim to be locals now. <laughs> and um, the family business that I grew up as being part of started with my father and his twin brother. So we had Alan and Colin and they left school, to your point, Chris, about having street smarts. They left school at the age of 14 and long story short, they built up a very successful timber and hardware, truss and framing department store. You had me thinking, why why do we come up with different business names? And they called it Denbro. The Denson Brothers. Uh, Denson Brothers, there you go. So that was how they, and the brand became very well known regionally, in fact, during my, the height of my football playing days, I should have really had an, a royalty arrangement in place because I became known as Denbro. That was my nickname. <laughs> so playing football all around country Victoria and representative football, you'd hear Denbro being called out when I missed something or when I did something good. So I should have really got a fee for that. I think that all that promotion. And you were lucky that it was a, a tasteful, um, non-offensive mm. nickname, Gary. Mm. Well, Moss, I was driving out your way the other day and I drove past Danaher's. Now, that doesn't tell me anything as to what they do, but I think everybody in the district knows exactly what they do. So there's that, there's that funny sort of evolution of business names, isn't it, Gary, to your point? And it just sticks. And, of course, the intellectual property lawyers would tell us the value attached to that, especially when you go into selling and buying businesses, like Dick Smith sold his business and it was still called Dick Smith because that was what was essentially the value of the business, selling widgets and electronics, no big deal, but, oh, Dick Smith. Gary, tell us a little bit about you, what you do. and Well, a little bit of background. I, as I said, I grew up in a little country town and, and the best way to describe my upbringing was to say that it was a Tom Sawyer-esque. Growing up on the river, fishing, crayfishing, boating, camping, water skiing, anything to do with outdoors and of course summer was all cricket and a little bit of tennis and winter was football and um, so it was a wonderful place to grow up. Um, Beautiful bushlands, lovely river so very proud of where I began my career, sorry my life but more so when I came to Melbourne to study back in 79 I am showing my age now, Chris. That was a great year. You know why? There's a time stamp. Can I tell you, that? because all our footy fans, I was in the members reserve on the half forward flank of the infamous Wayne Harms. Oh, yes, I was there. You were there too. Anyway, sorry, Gary. So you came to Melbourne in 1979 to study. To study. And just to time stamp one more, Mike, I stood up on empty beer cans at that game so I could see over the crowd in the standing only in the southern stand. Half strength, I'm sure, yeah. Gary. <laughs> <laughs> Most exertion for the day was getting the plastic garbage bin up over the turnstiles that was full of ice and beer. <laughs> it was a different time. <laughs> so you came to Melbourne 79? 79, studied at Monash um, University doing marketing effectively and, and then started off working down in Melbourne with uh, Canberra TV uh, nobody can like Canberra can. They're not around anymore. I think radio rentals may have taken them out years ago. But then returned back up to the bush to run the family business. 
And that was my first lesson in strategic thinking. So when I said to my father at the age of 14, I want to be a doctor, he said, no, you're not. You're going to work in the family business. And I went, right, okay, change of, drop the science and and the, the bio and go into law and economics, all right? So when I came back from working in Melbourne for three or four years and I thought, right, I'm back, I'll get into the family business and and after spending three or four years doing that, I was still walking the shop floor and I had aspirations to be running the business at the grand age of 27. I sat Dad down one time and I said, listen, when's this all going to happen, you know, because I don't want to be walking the shop floor when I'm 49 or 50 when you guys are retiring at the age of 70 or something. And he said, oh, there's a slight problem there. He said, um, your uncle's not that keen that the balance of being Alan and Colin and it shifts to Gary and Colin and only Alan. I mean, didn't you talk about this when I was 14? <laughs> no. <laughs> so promptly retired and then headed back into Melbourne and, and started my career in insurance. And, uh, and that's what took me on to uh, living and working overseas for 25 years in Asia. Isn't that interesting, just that point that you make about I'm just extrapolating committees, executive, board machinations. You were all seeing that that out at play in Cobram, that Denbro. Yeah, yeah. It was my presumption that this had been deeply discussed, that one side of the family had someone interested in in working in it and running it more more to the point. And the other side, no, 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 that changes the the balance. So... um, yeah, it was a good lesson, not to assume. Good lesson to have early, isn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. That was the, the I suppose, the start to really pursuing a more professional career and and uh, eventually going overseas. Was it hard leaving country life? Yeah, it was. I really enjoyed. I was heavily involved in the community, and what was I doing back then? I was vice president of the Chamber of Commerce. I was part of Apex, football, cricket the Bicentennial Committee. So, yeah, I really enjoyed all of, you know, putting something back into into the community. I in, instigated the Cobram Cup Carnival for the Melbourne Cup because we worked out that people were from basically taking the day off back then. So I thought, well, let's get people to come into town and shop. And uh, so we created a carnival around that. And uh, I'd organised a hot air balloon to turn up in November and lo and behold, it turned out to be 40 degrees that day, so the hot air balloon didn't, didn't go anywhere. <laughs> but anyway, we got them back a couple of months later when it was cooler and, and uh, those that won the tickets uh, finally got to float. So, yeah. so anybody who knows Gary Denson, you'd agree that he's very charismatic and as much as you would have missed the country town, I suspect in some ways you'd outgrown it as well and you were looking for other pastors to till, Gary? Yeah, that's that's very accurate. In fact, when I went from playing football at at Cobram, I was club champion in 86 and I went across to Yarrawonga in 87 purely to see if I could play at that next level. And I was fortunate enough to play representative football for the Ovens and Murray and we won the the championship against Mildura, uh, Sunraysia League. So my life was very much stepping out of one pond into a larger pond and, and I do sit back and think, oh gosh, you know, I was sitting in the, the tallest building in Philadelphia, 9-11, on the 53rd floor when the, the planes went into uh, the world. So hang on, tra- backtrack that you were, uh, you were in the States. Yeah. 
in the States and on the 53rd floor when the planes went into the World Trade Center in New York. And the word quickly came was um, Sears building in Chicago had been hit, which it hadn't. But the rumour, you know, the, the, the panic that, that circulated instantly was amazing. And I remember saying to our regional head of underwriting, I said, uh, Ed, lovely American guy, I said, Ed, uh, I'm not going to take the stairs. And he goes, we have to, we have to, because, you know, it's, that's what you do in an emergency. And I said, Ed, look, with the greatest of respect, I'm going to take my chances on going from 53 down to 20, which was express, and then the next 20 down to zero, which was each floor. And that was, that was really sad because there were people in the lifts crying. My sister worked in that building and, you know, it was really confronting. But I said to Ed, sorry, mate, I know the average size of Americans. I'm not going to get stuck on a stairwell. <laughs> <laughs> So even Which at that, even at that time, Gary, we agreed you, and jumped in the lift. <laughs> <laughs> were you thinking, even at that time, with your insurance hat on, this is just going to change the world, which yeah. it subsequently did? Yeah. Well, hang on a second, Moss. Don't get serious on me. I want to hear about fat Americans. <laughs> <laughs> it was chaotic because we got to the ground floor, and I, and it was amazing. The most there were hundreds of people out on the footpath, and they were just standing around. Some people having a smoke and. You know, wondering, oh, what's really happening? And I said to Ed, I'm not going to stand here because if a plane comes into this building and it was a big glass mirrored Liberty Tower, Tower as it's called, I said, we'll be cut to shreds. So we got into an ATM alcove and then I was, we were there for about 15 minutes. I said, blow this, let's just go back to my hotel room, which was only a couple of blocks away. But sitting there, it was absolute Keystone cop stuff. There were fire trucks bypassing each other going in opposite directions there were cop cars going every way people running this way and that way and this went on for hours and hours into the night it was quite amazing to see that panicked response um, firsthand and then the fighter jets because I had jet lag I was up at 3am in the morning and the fighter jets just scanning across the the skyline all night just making sure that nothing else was coming. Must have been terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. But you look at the document. I look at the documentary. George W. They just they were in a panic. They landed the plane, and some guy came in a Tarago to drive him from the tarmac to a, a bunker. And the guy was doing it like this Tarago had never gone so fast in his life, and there was no reason for him to be driving like that. Anyway, so, Moores, you were saying... Yeah, because, Gary, you're in the insurance field or you've spent a lot of your professional life calculating risk. So what was your, your thoughts after that? Oh, it would change everything, and it did. One of my other pursuits, part-time pursuits, I ran with three other very good friends from Cobram. We ran rock concerts for about 22 years, but we ran it every second year uh, in Yarrawonga, and then there was uh, another event called Peaches and Cream, that was running Cobram in the alternate year. So now I use that as an example because in 2002 we were trying to we were looking to run the next event and to get the adequate insurance coverages was astronomical. So it, it changed that significantly to the point where it wasn't economically viable. So that's just a small example of how it cut across because you had crowds, you had different threat events. So, yeah, it was significant. Even the, the settlement around, because there were two towers, I think the owner was Larry Silverman, I think. 
he was arguing it was two separate events. The insurers were arguing it was one event. So, you know, that in itself created an enormous 10-year legal battle as to was it going to be paid twice or once and, yeah, because it was just um, that significant. What was the outcome of that? Was it considered one or two? I think he ended up winning. Yeah, I think, if I recall correctly. Yeah, two. So you spent a large proportion of your life, business life and life, over in Asia. Yeah, started. I left Bank of Melbourne in two, um, 1997. I was heading up their direct marketing and uh, an American insurance group contacted me and AIG and they said, can you come into Asia and help set up our direct response marketing, which was basically back then direct mail, telemarketing. So I had a year in Jakarta, living based in Jakarta, and that was fascinating because it was the, the last year of Suharto, effectively. We had riots and, um, riot, you know, killing Chinese people or anyone who looked Chinese, whether they were Indonesian or not. So um, I evacuated out of there with the family, just one son and my wife, and we ended up living in Singapore for the next 10 years. And then from there we went on to Bangkok for five years. And I've been travelling back and forth through China and Tokyo since then sort of thing, yeah. And you're still in the insurance realm? Well, I'm not so much. I have my own consultancy and I keep that on the side. But right now, through my insurance contacts, I was asked to set up a cyber security business in Australia last year. And that's uh, Cybots Australia, New Zealand. And this is an AI, artificial intelligence driven technology, military grade cyber security protection solutions. So I've been doing that since about 12 months now. Yeah. But that came through my insurance network. And in fact, what we're doing right now is we've almost completed building an AI driven underwriting tool for the insurance industry because the insurers are walking away from protecting, providing cyber protection because it's too dynamic. There's too many losses for them. Too many moving parts, Gary. There's threats coming out, hundreds of threats coming out every day. So for an insurer to try and protect, provide protection for that, they can't currently assess that relative to the premium intake. So they're just standing back a little bit at the moment. It's interesting, Moors. We we spoke to Rob Viney in episode two, which is obviously not at the a different sort of more comprehensible for most of us sorts of insurance. And we talked about risk and assessment and how that whole industry industry works. But who would be the typical clients of that business? Well, our, our sweet spot here in Australia is very much SMEs. And there's two point three million of them, and our research tells us that. Uh, and this is not a criticism, it's just simply an observation. It's a fact that a lot of small, medium enterprises aren't aware. So that means that they're somewhat ignorant. And it's okay being, because you know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. But because of their uh, lack of awareness or education, they become a primary target. So of that 2.3 million uh, SMEs, 40% of those were hit last year with cyber attacks. Um, and they aren't always ransom demands. They can be disruption or exfiltration of data, etc. So what we try to focus on is providing them with that artificial intelligence solution, which fits in with their budget because they don't have the capital of corporations. 
So we provide a subscription-based service that enables them to have the latest technology but at an affordable rate for their, for their cash flow and for the size of the business. So what sort of threats are we talking about, Gary? Is it similar or I'm, what I'm thinking of is you get the email and... Fishing, yeah. <laughs> good, good morning, kind sir, and you have won a million dollars and it's come from some country and another continent. So what sort of threats, what do they look like? Well, that's, that's probably the most common is what we call phishing with PH, yeah, and that's where you get an email and it ostensibly looks like it's from someone that you know could be a vendor, a supplier, it could be an insurance company that looks the same, but they're using a different address. And then they say, open this up and check this out. What you've done is activated some malware to go into your system. And and it can sit there. We've had clients that it can sit there for six, 12 months and they won't activate it. So you don't even know it's there. And then they activate it and they exfiltrate or they disrupt services. And that's typically how they're getting in. And or you have under prepared platform capabilities. For example, you're, you're not updating your apps, right? So you need to make sure when you get an update, you do it. My lovely wife says, I'm not updating my own my iPhone because it messes up my whole, the look and feel of it. I'm updated because it's got the latest security. I understand where Kerry's coming from. <laughs> there are all sorts of different ways that they can get in. Fishing is one of the most uh, successful, but a lot of small, medium enterprises don't understand also that if you've got $10 million in turnover and you're a director of uh, that company you own, for example, then if there is personal data exfiltrated, you are personally responsible. So there's, the government's doing an increasingly better job of promoting that and making that awareness, but a lot of people don't know that. So they should talk to their lawyers or their their accountants for that advice. Mm. Our resident technologist, Chris Mirabella, has been all over this for, well, the security in 2FA for years. Well, I'm not naming names, but let's just use initials, and those initials are more in Haiti. <laughs> and I remember the, the look I got when I was suggesting two-factor authentication and I suggested using the same password with an exclamation mark and a second exclamation mark wasn't security at all. But I hear what you're saying. No, it, it's interesting. It's Most people don't really take it seriously until they're affected. And eventually you're going to get affected because, I look, you talk about that fishing thing and, I mean, I'm fortunate because I'm always onto it. And But sometimes I, you know, late at night I'm looking at the iPad and, and I said, gee, that's a very, very, very crafty, well done one. The frustrating thing is at an enterprise level, even the fundamental lack of protection that organisations have, even in SMEs, if they're still hosting a server and they're not sort of entirely in the cloud and they're not patching uh, their Windows Server versions and things like that, they're sort of asking for trouble and this false economy that they go into. And I have this discussion with people all the time. Oh, I don't think I want to put things on the cloud. And I say, well, do you know your little desktop PC that you haven't updated, you know, your Windows 8 uh, machine that hasn't got any protection at all, even though it's not, is actually probably at higher risk than if you actually logged into your Microsoft 365 account and all that sort of stuff. But gosh, you've started me more. So yeah. I'm really fascinated yeah. no, by no, it. It is a good point. And if by going into the cloud, what you are doing is relying on the Amazons and the Googles and those major, major companies that are, that have got those protections in place. That That is... They need to do that to secure their reputation and their business growth. If you're still running off servers, then you need to make sure that you are constantly patching, you're whitelisting, which means 
identifying those applications which are good versus those which aren't. And to your point, Chris, Microsoft Office has a number of extensions that are very prone to cyber attack. It's public knowledge. It's There's Adobe, there's Flash Player, there's these others that are very, very vulnerable to hackers to come in through by embedding that into uh, an email or in some way, however they're getting through. And then that's how they embed themselves into your system. Even backing up daily is important, but if you've already been hacked and you don't know, then all you're doing is backing up their, their nasty work. So there are, there are tools available where you can go in and do a compromise assessment to see if you have been compromised and you don't know. Gary, it's, um, and sorry, I should now backtrack on this quickly. Moors and I, we are both well onto it, Moors and we're, our practices are very good in, and the best we can. I'm more interested about that. The security stuff that you've said doesn't surprise me, but just that personal or that liability because everybody has a contact book. And I actually find it really disconcerting when you get this fantastic app and the first thing it asks is, oh, we'd like to access your contacts to you know, make life easier. And, well, so, you know, in the early days, I said, oh, yeah, fair enough. But you're giving away <laughs> effectively the personal details of your nearest and dearest, really without their knowledge. Yeah, yeah, and that's one of the criticisms of some of these big big players. Um, again, Facebook is trying to deal with this, but one of the criticisms there is that they're constantly stripping through all of your contacts and all of that information, and they're making revenue off that with effectively, whilst it may have your consent, they're not paying you a click of the ticket for the benefit of using all of that information. And you're not really aware of what you're consenting to either. When they say, that, you know, can we access your contacts, you don't know what they're going to be doing with it and you might think, oh, okay, Facebook's going to suggest friends for me to connect with. So, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, but not necessarily. The flip side, of course, is, and I'm no advocate for um, any of these social media things, but would you rather see an ad that's actually you're interested in or just the same ad that everybody else sees that, is of no interest to you. I'd rather see more shoes in my feed, definitely. <laughs> How many pairs of shoes do you have more? Countless. <laughs> Although I have culled since COVID because we weren't going out and doing anything, so a lot went to goodwill. More you remind me of my sister-in-law when um, she was saying that um, they she would have 102 pairs of shoes in her household and we were aghast, like, really? And her husband chimed in and said, well, okay, so if you take away my three shoes, that leaves you with a 99 of your own, don't you? So it sounds very similar, yeah. Well, you know, Gary, speaking of Asian, joining some dots here, I always thought that a great business name for a shoe business would be Amelda's. Because you know exactly what I'm talking mm. about, don't you? And some certain people of a certain age, because Amelda Marcos, she was apparently a legend. How many shoes? Well, apparently thousands, Yeah. Yeah, so I reckon Amelda's would have been a great chain, <laughs> but maybe, I don't know. Anyway, not as good as the one I did see. That's where I was going to go when we were talking about the start of the show. The best business name I ever saw, I was sitting in a cafe, yes, believe it or not, on a Saturday morning, in a big tradie-looking van with ladders and everything pulled up, and its business name said, The Tree Fairy. Any guesses what The Tree Fairy did? Anyone? Um, arborist. Oh, mate, got it in one. Uh. And anyway, this six foot five giant of a man walked in. 
And I said, mate, oh, I love your business name. And he does this big grin came up on his face and he says, everybody remembers my business name. So, Gary, you're back in Melbourne now and have been for about a year, two years. Yeah. Yeah. So I was running an insurance company in Singapore, a British insurance company, and it specialised in um, direct response distribution of auto and travel. And that was all going wonderfully and then... Uh, my health took a slight turn for the worse and uh, that precipitated coming home just before lockdown in uh, 2020, 2020, yeah, 2020 March. So unfortunately, yeah, I, um, I found a, a small lump on my upper left chest and I had it checked out the next morning and don't worry about it, it's fine. So I said, no, I'll worry about it and I'll, let's get a different scan and so long story short, it uh, transpired that I had stage four melanoma cancer and that, that then um, manifested itself with some severe pain attacks um, where the, the growth had metastasized on my adrenal glands um, and that was the, really the first severe indication that something wasn't uh, going too well inside. So anybody who knows you and follows you on your social media, because you're quite prolific on social media, can see that path because you've been very open about your story, about how you've been dealing with it, how your family has responded. And I go back to what you were talking about growing up in Cobram because you've mentioned that a number of times in your posts about enjoying the sun and the country lifestyle, sports. Yeah, look, I, I think that's where it all happened. It's, I, I can remember a number of times. Uh, I remember doing a charity walk. We walked from Cobram through Baruga to Tokemall back to Cobram, which is probably 24, 25 kilometres, and I think I was 11 or 12 years old and, and basically walked it in a pair of shorts and a singlet. And um, you know, the next day was completely blistered. But it was that lack of education back then, lack of awareness. That was even before Slip Slop Slap first came out, I think, which was in the mid to late 70s. So, um, and having that outdoor lifestyle, I was never a big sit and sunbake to turn brown. It was just being active out in the sun and, and that certainly uh, caught up with me. And I think having the Irish and Danish heritage doesn't help where you're just not built for the, for the, the, the intense sun of Australia. And um, it's been a bit of a journey. They gave me three months to live 18 months ago and here I still am. So... Um, fighting on and the good news is the last couple of scans have shown that the growth that is still there six different growths one behind my eye and spots on my lungs and um, a couple on my intestine system and the growths on the adrenal glands a couple of growths in the buttocks uh, they aren't progressing so they're still there but they're not progressing and I've been on this uh, clinical trial for that period and uh, so we're hoping that it's something starting to, to happen there where the body's finally acknowledging that whilst these growths have the same DNA, of course, that they're, they're not friendly. So um, fingers crossed. Gary, I'm interested, intrigued about in, in terms of your health. Uh, if the people don't know you and now we hear about your childhood and your sport and your love of sport, you're very fit and healthy. You look very fit and healthy in that respect. Um, has that been useful for you in this fight or does, does it make no difference? Uh, no, no, really, really important. It's, um, I try and walk six to seven kilometres every day and um, typically can swim a kilometre a day. 
and that's probably more to do with um, whilst I you know won't have the the physical or aerobic fitness that I once had, the mental health that comes from that because you get some a period of clarity and you feel good about yourself that you can walk that distance. I mean, six or seven kilometres may not seem a lot to some people, but when I came out of having um, my first bowel resection, I remember um, celebrating when I walked 150 metres. And then the next day it was 160, and the next day 170. And then that's how I just kept progressing. I just said, I want to add 10 metres each day. So it is important to the to the mental health. No. Gary, thank you for sharing. Amazing story. Truly inspirational. Inspirational. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm just going to take a break for a second. We'll come back to talking to Gary about some other stuff and SH1T that we seem to be specialists. Not Gary's story. It's dead set serious. But we would like to talk a little bit about one of our sponsors. It's the Four Leaves Food Store. So Four Leaves Food Store, we're situated in Rosanna. And it's run by the lovely and very slim, working seven days a week, Rodney Van Orshot. Four Leaves Food Store, a Rosanna institution in its relatively short lifespan of what, about five years, is it now? Seven. Seven years, wow. Yeah. So if you're in that, if you're up that way and you turn and you're coming, uh, oh, it doesn't matter, you turn off uh, Rosanna Road? Yeah, you turn off Rosanna Road. It's on the quieter side of Rosanna. Rosanna is dissected by Rosanna Road and there's the station side, which is quite busy, and then... Our side, the the Banyul side, so to speak, and it's one of those beautifully, those wonderful areas that they designed when they sort of did that town planning in the probably sixties, yeah, like, like Brady Bunch, like the Brady Bunch. <laughs> You're driving along houses, 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 and there's this beautiful group of strip shops which has survived. So many of them haven't now. That you can see them; they're all renovated into houses and you know just sort of storage places. But here's this beautiful village shops. What's what's the actual village called? So it's called Greville Road Shops. Greville Road Shops, yep. Yeah. And there's a chemist and a... Yeah, there's a chemist, news agents, a pharmacy, post office, fish and chip shop, milk bar. Pride of Place, though, <laughs> and every every suburb has to have one. Pride of Place is the Four Leaves food store and also beautiful coffee there, beautiful cafe. And they look after people from the networking matters slash communist community. So get out there, say g'day to Rodney and the crew and uh, m- mention our name and they'll probably... Not give you a discount because they've got to make a living. Is that right, Maureen? No, we'll do, we'll do you a deal. <laughs> do you a deal. <laughs> Wonderful place. Great place to either unwind with a lovely relaxing meal with friends or if you just need a coffee and get in there and in and out. Wonderful. And they're very proud sponsors of the Moors and Mirror podcast. Gary, with this new venture, what's the objective of well, the business and what's your personal objectives professionally for the next little while? Really, it's uh, a focus on uh, supporting any small, medium enterprise with... Uh, helping them understand the the risk that they're at. A simple example is I was chatting to a guy in Sydney uh, several months ago, runs a small business. It's a bit like a high-end Airbnb, but it's his own business and he has um, 30 or 40 high-end properties around Sydney and New South Wales. He's been hacked now twice and on both occasions has paid out 20,000 US dollars. Now, he could just survive that. Uh, he didn't have any insurance, and um, insurance is important. But it, as I mentioned earlier, I think that the insurance industry is struggling with how they can provide adequate cover at an adequate price or an affordable price. So it really is trying to educate small, medium enterprises. What they can do is very simply protect themselves, and 
the essential eight is what we started to talk about before. And if you go onto the government website, www.acsc.com, then uh, you'll be able to find the essential eight. And it's very simple things, whitelisting, making sure that your MS uh, applications that have vulnerabilities to cyber attack are um, shut down, dual authentication. So very simple things to do that can give you a higher degree of protection. But ultimately, there are other more sophisticated tools are available quite affordable. We provide a lot of technology solutions to clients and just by default when we go in there and we're editing DNS records for websites or setting up email clients and things like that, we usually take that opportunity to educate the client and say, this is why we're doing this. Actually, people are pretty receptive to it. They just need to be shown. But I think people just get so frightened of technology or I think they fall into a couple of categories, Gary. I think they're lazy. I think people know that they should but couldn't be bothered when that hasn't happened to them. They think that putting a dollar sign instead of a five is good security in their password. Turns out the bad guys have worked that one out. Mm. But also I think the other thing is they just, you know, they, they think it's it's too hard and complex. You know, it's not. For us, the, the best uh, defence is always 2FA, two-factor authentic- or multi-factor authentication. And if you're offered the choice of multiple ways of having that second factor, we always say, look, SMS is okay, but SIM cards can be hacked and intercepted. So it's a, probably not as big in Australia as it is overseas. But I know if you ever go to a store and get a SIM swap, you can have to do it in front of you, essentially. But, you know, if you've got the option of a, an authentication code on your phone or even a secure key, which is what we use, we use um, uh, Ubico keys. Actually, it's a funny story, you know, Gary, that Obama is a nerd. And when he was um, campaigning, his presidency, he insisted everybody had two-factor authentication, including secure keys on all their devices and applications and everything, and didn't get hacked. Hillary, when she was campaigning against Trump, uh, wasn't so vigilant. vigilant or educated about it, and she was very relaxed. And her personal Gmail account got compromised because it was easier for them to get in. The Russians discovered that she'd been doing some official business through a Gmail account, which is a big no-no by any, any, any measure. That information got passed to Donald. Donald then exploited that for political purposes. If Hillary had had two-factor authentication on her personal devices, she may have even won an election. So there you go. So that's a cybersecurity thing. So uh, so that's that's the business. Tell us the website. What's the website address for the business, Gary? www.cybots, C-Y-B-O-T-S-A-I, cybotsai.com. If people who are listening to this, our people on our network are interested, in, they can contact you. Gary.Denson at cybotsai.com. Yeah, terrific. And look, if nothing else, Gary will give you a straight up meeting of where everything's at and and any other things you would suggest to people before they come to see you that they should be prepared for. Oh, well, what I can offer is a special part of the Moors and Mirror, I was going to say Moors and Chris show, Moors and Mirror show, is uh, more than happy. Cybots is more than happy to offer what we call a compromise assessment. This is where we put in some of our agents. We look at your current files, servers, and we can do that for free, normally $5,000, and we'll do that for free for you. I've got 10 giveaways to provide to the listeners of this uh, show. Just contact me. It doesn't um, cause any issues with your current operations. It runs silently in the background. It can be installed within a day and you'll have the results the next day to see if you've already been hacked or not. Very good, and I can uh, endorse that, Gary, because uh, we love talking to you. We just love actually drawing on your knowledge and 
inexperience and business generally. Moore's big week ahead for you? Reasonably big week ahead, Chris. We're coming up to the end of the school term, heading into the school holidays. So with the uh, Four Leaves Food Store, we've got a few kids who want to uh, <laughs> save up and then get a few more shifts. What about you, Chris? Well, we're working on a really interesting project at the moment. Our other sponsor, Precious Stories, preciousstories.com.au. Precious Stories is about recording the stories of the people who are nearest and dearest to us. And it was inspired by an experience I had. I'm sitting and interviewing people in a professional environment. It was nothing new. But mum just was about to turn 80. And the siblings, and there's five of them, had said, well, Chris, you sort of work in this business. Why don't you go down there and get mum's stories? So we need some good things to talk about you know, when we do the speeches. Oh, yeah, I'll do that. And uh, I didn't know anything sophisticated like this. I didn't. I just had a little um, reporter's recorder and I turned it on. I didn't even, I just needed it for transcription, really. She was aware of it, but then she quickly forgot it was there. And she proceeded to just tell this, this story. Now, she was from an era where, you know, even though mum was very progressive, a feminist in many respects in her way, she still came from an era where you didn't really talk about yourself as a woman, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And I was finding out these incredibly fascinating things that she'd done and achieved in her life that I never knew, let alone, you know, who was related to who and what happened, all that sort of stuff. And that was the inspiration for Precious Stories. And Mum said to me, don't turn it into a bloody eulogy, Chris. And I said, no, 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 I won't promise I won't. But the reality was I got the story of a nearly eight-year-old who has got a great story to tell recorded. I thought, that's a great idea for a little business. Because everybody says, oh, you know, I should, you know, I could just get my phone and I'll sit down. But nobody ever does. And uh, the thing about Precious Stories and what I was really, what I found really good, I've sat and interviewed CEOs and footballers and rock stars and politicians and everything like that. And it all follows a fairly predictable pattern. They basically tell you what they want to tell you and that sort of stuff. And to get an authentic story and use those skills that you've sort of honed over the years, which is talking and sort of dragging the best out of people, was fantastic. So I'm coming full circle here, Moors. I have one of those coming up this week and I'm really excited looking forward to that amongst everything else that we do. So preciousstories.com.au and if you've got a loved one or a friend, it doesn't have to be a relative, it could be a colleague, someone who's just got a really interesting story to tell, get in touch and we can talk about something that we can arrange for you. It doesn't have to be um, Ben Hur Productions. It can, we always recommend audio because long-form audio is quite interesting. People aren't going to watch a one-hour video but they'll listen to a one-hour recording. I have one professional regret I had the opportunity professionally around about 2000. The Olympics in Sydney were about to happen. And uh, in, in full disclosure, I was working with my brother Dave, Mirror Image, mirrorimage.com.au, and we got a phone call from NBC, I think it was. Again, it was sort of back in the day, you just couldn't move video over the internet or anything like that. So you basically would do your production here as a proxy for, you know, we, did, we had BBC as a client, CNN, all that sort of stuff. So it wasn't new to us but it was quite a production if you needed they needed a local story and then you'd actually have to get the tapes FedExed to um, America or London or whatever or played out by satellite which was prohibitively expensive but you know that's what that happened too but the one that I always regretted my Dave my brother had this policy that when we were engaged by one of these uh, organizations once that tape left that was the only copy of it Gary the only copy was you know if it could get lost easily so we'd always back it up but this particular job was so urgent that literally there was a courier waiting. It was at the MCG, waiting for the tape to get it onto the aeroplane to get it over the States. And that's the subject. The guy that I interviewed was a guy called Peter Norman. Now, Peter Norman, for most people, unless you're into athletics and sport, you wouldn't know who Peter Norman is. Peter Norman was the silver medalist 
at the Olympics, the famous photo of the two American athletes doing the black power salute with their one black glove each. And Peter Norman won the silver medal. And it turns out Peter Norman's story, he was instrumental in that whole episode. Everyone just thought he was the white guy just standing there as a, you know, just as a lamppost, had nothing to say. But it turns out Peter Norman's story was extraordinary. Anyway, Peter told me his story. He told me the official story and then when the microphones were off, he told me a whole lot more, which was fascinating. And he died a few years after that. The athletics officials hated him so much that he wasn't invited to the Sydney Olympics. It was the Dawn Fraser equivalent of athletics. But uh, I remember how reluctantly I handed over, had no opportunity to back up that story because when he died, there's virtually nothing in an electronic format featuring Peter Norman. It's all word of mouth and books and things like that. They probably do exist. And here he was this amazing story. And he bought his silver medal. He um, let me manhandle it. I put it in my teeth. I thought it was really <laughs> clever. The interesting part of it is once we'd done the interview, we did it up in the old Olympic stand and and the producers in the state said, oh, can you get some what, B-roll, which is just some general vision. And the MCG Museum, MCC Museum was down there. And he said, look, I'll meet you down there. And I said, yeah, it's fine. I've just got to help the guys pack up and I'll see you down there with the cameras. And he got down there ahead of us. And I and I just had this, I just had his silver medal in my mouth. And I got down there and I didn't realise that he'd, it was actually on loan, permanent loan to the MCC Museum. And there was a curator with long white gloves <laughs> delicately manhandling this medal back into its case with light and uh it was one of these regrets i have to this day that i didn't keep a copy of that tape because he died and then i I didn't actually understand his full story but carlos and uh the two american athletes carlos and um tommy when he died they came to australia he respect they respected him so much they were poor bearers carry his coffin out and he didn't get an invite to the sydney olympics and his record i think it's the 400 is still the australian record Mm -hmm. and when carlos and they became the two Americans became first came first and third, and the guy who came third was the world champion. And the reporters asked him, "Are you surprised that your college teammate beat you?" He said, "No, no, no, that didn't surprise me at all. What surprised me was that a white guy could run that fast." <laughs> lovely, lovely. Anyway, it's a great story. So look, I'm going a long way around. Preciousstories.com.au. And speaking of fantastic stories, hearing your story, Gary, I could sit here for hours. Couldn't we, Moors? We could sit here for hours. We it? definitely could. What's your weekend got for you? Oh, I'm very lucky. Uh, take the puppy down to West St Kilda Beach. She loves that. And then we fly to Noosa on Sunday for uh, celebrating a, a good friend's 50th birthday for a few days. And so that'll be nice. And apparently the weather has broken up there and it's starting mm. to come in here. So um, it'll be nice. Yeah. Gary, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's, it's great fun. story. You can get in touch with Gary. You can get in touch with us as well. Um, and we'll look forward more to our next exciting episode of the Moors and Mirror podcast. Thanks, Mira. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Moors. Thanks, Mira.